the book that inspired today's talk, Washington's Crossing, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in history. The New York Times called it, quote, a highly realistic and wonderfully readable narrative, and it's right here, and Dr. Fisher will be signing copies upstairs after the talk, and I can't recommend it too highly. Um, and they said it corrects all the inaccuracies but preserves the overwhelming sense of drama in the story. Fisher's other books have included Albion's Seed, Four British Folkways in America, a work that revolutionized the way that historians think about our relationship to our long-lost, somewhat estranged mother country, as well as Paul Revere's Ride, Liberty and Freedom, A Visual History of America's Founding Ideas, and most recently, Champlain's Dream, which might be called The History of an Alternative American Founding. Graduate of Princeton and Johns Hopkins, Dr. Fisher serves as the Earl Warren Professor of History at Brandeis University, where he has taught since 1962. And to give you, um, finally, more of a sense of his intellectual range, the two books he's presently at work on are, first of all, Comparative Political History of the United States and New Zealand, and the other one, A History of the Survival of African Folkways in American Culture. So I'm just thrilled to introduce someone who is, um, to me, an American icon himself, David Hackett Fisher. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much, Adam and and Marty. It's an honor uh, to be uh, asked uh, to join this uh, lecture series and always a delight to be in this house of treasures. We were just uh, before uh, we came here uh, with Adam uh, and Marty in that new exhibition that's just recently gone on the wall on the third floor uh, called The Struggle for Justice. And if you haven't seen it, go there. It's just an absolutely extraordinary uh, uh, gathering of images and history and all the things that Adam was talking about. Let me make a very quick um, family introduction, if I may. Three generations of my family are here. Uh, today. Uh, first, um, uh, my wife, uh, Judy. Where is uh, Judy? I'm looking for a, a lady in red. There she is. Uh, Judy and I, um, Judy's a, a botanist and a biologist, uh, I a historian. We met at Johns Hopkins University uh, in 1959, 1960. And we have been botanizing and historicizing together ever since uh, for exactly 50 years. Uh, and she, uh, <laughs> uh, she's helped with all of these projects. I paddle her canoe into the Everglades when she goes in search of that rare American crocodile that uh, she likes to get very close to. Uh, and uh, we've had many adventures uh, together. Also, our daughter, uh, Susanna, is here. Uh, Susie, uh, uh, Susie is uh, a, a British barrister, an American lawyer, a professor of law, at Catholic University, and people say, scratch a lawyer and find a historian, and I think that's what uh, Susie does. And uh, uh, Susie's son and our grandson, Matthew, is here as well. Uh, Matthew's in uh, uh, kindergarten uh, in Chevy Chase, where he lives, and uh, uh, what I've been trying to do is to write history that reaches across these generations, that reaches especially to Matthew's generation. Uh, And one way to do that, I think, is to work with images of things. Uh, uh, Judy and I uh, grew up uh, in, uh, grew up before television. Um, 
we hear things. Uh, Matthew sees things. And his generation can process an image in a microsecond and can see things that elude us, have eluded us for, for uh, many a year. So all of this is part of that, uh, of, of that uh, long effort. Uh, let me um, begin by saying that I want to talk about an image that all of you have seen before. Uh, it is this behind me on the, on, on the screen. Um, most Americans not only recognize this image, but they uh, know its name. Uh, and uh, they remember it, Washington crossing the Delaware. Uh, less familiar is the artist, Emanuel Leutze, uh, who finished it in 1851. Uh, today it's in the collections of the New York's, of New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, it's temporarily off the wall. I just called uh, a day before yesterday and was told that it will be back up and installed in a dramatic new way uh, in, in 2011. It's an enormous painting. Uh, it was scaled uh, to the size of the people in the boat. They are all meant to be life-size, except for George Washington, who I think is a size and a half, <laughs> if you try to, uh, try to, to calculate it. Uh, and the painting itself um, is presently 12 feet high, 20 feet long. Uh, and, uh, and when we would visit it, as we frequently do, did in the Met, always there was a row of chairs in front of this painting. And almost always the chairs were full. Uh, the last time we were there, they were filled with Japanese tourists uh, who were getting a lecture in Japanese on the meaning of this painting, and they were absolutely enthralled. They were just totally uh, centered on that painting, and I wish that I could have been able to understand that conversation. This is an image that now belongs not to America, but the world. And uh, we have sold the translation rights to Washington's Crossing in Serbo-Croatian, Serbo-Croatian, of uh, uh, two countries uh, which are uh, very much centered on issues of their founding uh, and their purpose and come to it uh, that way. Uh, we were invited to lecture in uh, China uh, and uh, at, the, uh, uh, at the request of the Chinese government to my amazement to center our lecture on the meaning of liberty and freedom, which absolutely astounded me. And we... Uh, uh, we were also discovered. We, dis we discovered a new dimension of liberty over there. We found a two-volume edition of Washington's Crossing that my publisher did not know about, <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, we also found uh, a, a deep interest in this a growing subject in this his history, as is things are growing around the world. The American Historical Association uh, uh, keeps count, and uh, one of the recent issues of their trade publication called Perspectives reports that in, in, in enrollments in history courses, history majors, history degrees, are at a 30-year high in American universities as a whole, which uh, surprised me. I was amazed to, uh, to, to, to uh, discover that. And uh, we're doing very well, I think, that way in colleges. Uh, we're doing not so well with young parents or with young children. And there's unfinished business there that uh, I hope we can take in hand. This is a painting that Americans approach in different ways. Some of them love to celebrate it 
in a mood that the Adams family called filiopietism, which is the love and worship of ancestors, forebears, founders. Others a delight in debunking it, a word that we invented in America, W.E. Woodward in 1923 in a novel called Bunk. Uh, and uh, he, it describes a national pastime. Uh, it's, it, it, when, after I published Washington's Crossing, a, a great deal of mail began to arrive, and it came from both filiopietists and debunkers, and much of it centered not so much on the book but on this painting. Uh, one came from a feminist debunker. I had raised a question about one of the figures in the, in the boat. It's that figure uh, in the right foreground in the red shirt. And I suggested there's something androgynous about that figure, and I thought, uh, could it be a woman? Uh, there were many women in 18th century armies. Uh, we've got better records for General Howe's army, and 10% of his ration strength were, quote, women on the ration, end quote. And we don't know what the numbers were for the, uh, for the American armies, uh, but women were there marching with these, uh, the, 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 uh, with their husbands and others, uh, going into battle uh, often as well. And I wondered if surely there must have been women in these boats that crossed the Delaware, and perhaps this figure was a woman. And then the radical feminist joined the discussion, and she said about that figure in red, yes, it, it is a woman. And look again. She's the only person in that boat who is actually rowing. And, uh, and um, I wasn't quite ready to agree and pointed to the men of the bell. And uh, the, the, the feminist said, those men aren't rowing, they're paddling. And some of them are paddling in the wrong direction. Uh, and uh, there are, uh, the, there's a creativity to American debunking, which I hugely enjoy. Uh, and which this painting has inspired, as we will see. Uh, I'll show you more, some more examples. Most of us, though, are somewhere between filiopietists and debunkers. Uh, and uh, the question is, uh, is there space in between for some history? And that's what I'm about here. And I want to have a look at this painting. One can look at a history painting in many ways. Uh, there are, I can think of at least six ways uh, to see a, a picture, to study a historical painting. And I'm going to try to touch on, on all of them here today. First, we can look at it as a project, that is, something that took form in the mind of its creator. In fact, there were minds at work here. It was a, it was a project of a man, uh, but also of a group of other men and women ar around him. Uh, and then uh, the painting, uh, when the project was complete, became an event. It was an event from the very start. And it had a history of that way. And then I, well, I'm going to uh, have a look at it as, as a work of the painter's art, that is, of his technique, of his art and craft, how he did what he did in a painterly way. And then to look at it as a work of history, and also as a statement of value, and finally, as a painting among other paintings, as an icon in American and world culture uh, that was inspired by other paintings that came before it and that have inspired many other images uh, that have uh, come uh, afterwards. So let me begin uh, first 
uh, with, uh, let's, let me just give me a minute to familiarize myself with these things. First, with the artist, uh, Emanuel Leutze. Uh, he was born in Germany, not far from Stuttgart. The year was 1816. Uh, the Congress of Vienna, Middle Europe, shifting to the right. Emanuel Leutze's father was a skilled metal worker, probably very radical in his politics, but he was a radical liberal of the sort that was flourishing in Europe at that time. And the, the, the governments in that part of Germany were deeply, increasingly conservative. Uh, and uh, shortly after Emanuel Leutze was, was born, his, the, the father took the family to America, to Pennsylvania. And a friend, he had many friends in Germany, uh, a friend wrote a poem celebrating Leutz's uh, father, and two lines of it summarized the motives that then led to this painting. I'll uh, just read the lines. In Europe, the free man amounts to nothing. In the new world, freedom is the only king. Uh, and Leutz, he was, um, in, it was in 1825 uh, when they came to America. Uh, Emmanuel uh, Lloyd shortly after that, uh, uh, at the age of nine, his father fell ill, died in 1831. The family lived uh, on the edge, over the edge of poverty. And Lloyd discovered and was discovered to have a gift of sketching. He was a natural at that. Uh, and he began uh, to uh, put food on his family tables by painting portraits for $5. And he made a name for himself. And in 1840, some of his patrons raised the money to send him to Europe to study in what was thought to be the best school of painting in the world at that time. It was called the Dusseldorf Academy. Uh, oops, sorry. Let me just, it'll take me a while. This is the Dusseldorf Academy, very near the time that, uh, that Emanuel Leutze uh, went there. He signed the register not as painter, Mahler in German, but as historian, Mahler as history painter. And he was already beginning to think uh, in those terms. In the 18th century and even into the 19th, history painting was thought to be the highest form of painting by many people. And clearly, Leutze was thinking that way. He flourished in Germany, found a market for his paintings, uh, married uh, happily and uh, a, a woman named Julianne Lochner, daughter of a very high-ranking army officer, a colonel, this is Leutze now in, uh, in Germany. And this is his wife, Julianne Lochner. And it's a portrait by Leutze himself. And look at it closely. Uh, it's an example of his gifts. Uh, it's, notice the technique, uh, the modeling of the face, the, 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 the uh, posing of the figure, especially the hands that are so beautifully rendered here. The rendering of the texture in those contrasting fabrics, uh, the use of color. He was a colorist, he, uh, but these are muted colors, these reds and greens uh, and, and golds. But more than the technique, it's a testament of love of, uh, and also the kind of romantic depth of feeling. And we can see that this is an absolutely first-class painter uh, in, the, in the images uh, that he has uh, left us. His um, friends at school thought so too. And he quickly became a leader of a group of artists who called themselves the Malkastin, the painter's group. 
And like some of the great painters of the Italian Renaissance, uh, young Loitzi and his circle of high romantic painters thought of their own lives as works of art. Uh, and they cultivated and designed them. They design, in particular, they combined painting and politics. Uh, and they were mostly very liberal in their politics. They were mostly highly placed. A great many of them were American. Uh, people have found something like 40 major American painters who studied at the Dusseldorf Academy uh, while Loitze was there. And he was a good friend to all of them. He painted a good many of them. Uh, and um, as they were there, um, Europe, uh, Western Europe, Central Europe was in ferment uh, with the events that would lead uh, to the revolution of 1848. And Leutze strongly supported all of these uh, movements. And, it, and this was a period when liberalism was very nationalist, very, uh, uh, very uh, democratic, all of these things, also very romantic. Uh, and uh, they worked together at, at, at all of this and uh, took, drew their inspiration from the, the romantic poetry uh, that, that developed uh, in, at the same time. Then in 1848 and 1849, I think primarily to inspire revolutionary movements in Europe, Loitzi decided uh, to paint an image of, a, of an American revolutionary event. And it was to be uh, this great canvas that's our business uh, today. And it was very much from the start of a, 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 a group project. Loitze always was the master painter of this uh, in, in, in the project. Uh, but there were many others. Uh, this is Eastman Johnson, uh, who was one of his very close friends. Uh, one, one, of, one of many in this uh, group, and you can see the way they cultivate a kind of romantic aura around themselves uh, as, as, as well. And uh, they went to work on this uh, painting, and it took them a while. They were mostly they were doing other things at the same time. And Loitzi, we have some early sketches. Uh, and here are these three figures at the center of this great uh, canvas. And you'll notice that there are some things that set this, uh, these images apart from what uh, are in the painting that we know well today. One thing is that the colors are very bright. Uh, notice the colors in the American flag, as well as in the, uh, the, uh, the uniforms. And this was in 1848, uh, when the revolutions at first appeared to be succeeding in Western Europe. And at that early stage, uh, this was to be a painting that centered on a theme of triumph. And I think we can get a feel for that in those bright, very vivid colors. But as the artist kept working in his project, the revolutions failed. Uh, and in their failure, uh, the painting came to center not on triumph, but on struggle. And it turned to a different sort of motif. Uh, but Loitze was not in any way discouraged by the, the, the outcome of those, of those revolutions. In fact, it made for him this work even much more uh, urgent. And this was the painting that he first did, finished, uh, mostly finished in 1849. 18, the fall of 1850 was when it was almost uh, completed. He recruited many American friends he could not, he was able to get, with the help of, uh, of governors, the men who had become 
Governor Seward of New York and then Secretary of State under Lincoln. Seward got him a copy carefully made on, of the uniform of George Washington and sent it over to him. Uh, there were drawings of the sword that is not so visible here, we'll talk about in a moment. And uh, Loitze discovered a, a problem. He could not find a German who could fit the uniform of General Washington. It was too big for them. Uh, and so uh, there have been many studies that show that in the 19th century, the heights of people in the United States were considerably above those in Europe. It's uh, my friend Robert Fogel at the University of Chicago has written an econometric study that attributes that to animal proteins in the American diet. Whatever the cause was, the American artist Worthington Whitridge was pressed into service as George Washington. Uh, and uh, he, he, not for the, the, for the head. Uh, uh, Loitze always believed that history was on his side, that the evidence of history uh, was the best friend to his art, and so he got uh, Houdon's um, a life mask of Washington, a copy of it. Uh, and he created the face of Washington on that base, but the rest of it is Worthington Whitridge. And Whitridge described the agony of going through all of this. Uh, he said that he had to hold this pose for hours at a time. He said, quote, I nearly died in the process. They kept me going by pouring champagne down my throat. Uh, and uh, Maybe that sort of stern posture has more to do with these circumstances than, uh, than uh, with others. And, uh, and other painters uh, pitched in and helped in, 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 in many uh, ways. And uh, just as the painting was done, disaster. A fire broke out uh, in the rooms below this enormous studio uh, that uh, Loitze had hired for the uh, occasion. The date uh, was November 5th, 1850. Uh, and uh, many people rushed to rescue the painting, and they succeeded in getting it out, mostly by uh, uh, tearing it into many pieces. And uh, Loitze thought that it was destroyed, but somehow he was able to put it together again Though the painting was severely damaged in other ways, the effect of heat and smoke uh, had made those central figures sort of disappear in, a, in that sort of haze at the same time that the other figures in the foreground, the lower part of the canvas, uh, 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 remained uh, much more uh, clear. The painting um, uh, became a, uh, the property of an insurance company. They, they, they paid off on it, and then they gave it back to Loitze uh, and he was able to use the, both the money and the painting to, to raise more money. And again, not at all deterred by this, uh, he undertook to do another painting on the same scale, uh, maybe even larger. In its damaged state, this state, it was displayed in Berlin and won the gold prize uh, for the best painting uh, of that period. It was much celebrated in Europe. And then it became part of the permanent collection at the Bremen Art Museum until the Second World War, where, where on it, it, September 5th, 1942, it was destroyed in a raid by the Royal Air Force. Uh, and uh, some people have seen that as an ironic act of retribution for the, for the American uh, Revolution. Um, but uh, Loitze, in that year after it had been burned, um, uh, and his friends quickly painted uh, another full-size version. And I've got other, these are other black and white that show the, the, the various uh, 
uh, some various versions. This was the second uh, version. There were subtle changes and differences in very small parts. Uh, the, the, uh, we get still more muted some of the colors. Uh, his friends went to work and painted the sky in one day, all of them working together. Uh, and one of these uh, men uh, in particular, uh, whose name was Andreas Aschenbach, decided that the painting could be improved by a star, which he put high in the, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to see that, but if we go, you'll see it again here. You can see the, the, the star. This is, uh, this is the, the, the version that finally emerged from this process, and you see the star uh, up in the, in, in, the, in the upper left of the, uh, of the painting. Notice the colors in the flag and how muted uh, they have become here by comparison with what they were uh, before. Uh, Leutze sold the painting uh, yet again uh, to, a, uh, to a set of entrepreneurs who were mainly interested in producing and engraving. And uh, they, had, uh, they found the painting was so large that it was difficult for the engraver to go to work on it. Uh, so Leutze was asked to paint it yet again, and he gave that job largely to Eastman Johnson who painted another image, uh, which is in the collection of the Met today. It's only a fraction of the size. It's very sharp, very liney in the way it's done. The colors are bright again. It's now an American hand who is guiding that. Uh, and often today, when this painting is reproduced, it's the Eastman Johnson version that was reproduced. I was startled to discover the painting on the front of my book is the Eastman Johnson version. <laughs> Uh, because the, uh, the, uh, the, the design department at the Oxford University Press decreed that it would sell more books than the, uh, than the original. I wasn't even aware of this until it, had been, uh, until it had been done. The painting came to America in 1851, and it caused a sensation. In New York, more than 50,000 people turned out to see it, and among them was the future novelist Henry James, who was eight years old, Many years later, he remembered vividly uh, that impression. I uh, quote a, a couple of sentences. He said, he said, no impression of my youth was half so momentous as that of the epoch-making masterpiece of Mr. Loitze, which showed us Washington crossing the Delaware in the wondrous flare of projected gaslight, many people visiting it at night, and with the effect of revelation, he said, he said, Henry James said that he, quote, gaped responsive at every item, lost in the marvel of wintry light, of the sharpness of the ice blocks, of the sickness of the sick soldier whom you can see uh, uh, near the uh, stern of the boat with his head swathed in, in bandages. Most of all, he said he was inspired by the upright image of Washington himself, by, I'm quoting again, the profiled national hero's purpose, as might be said, of standing up as much as possible, even indeed of doing it almost on one leg in such difficulties, which uh, greatly impressed Henry James. The painting went on to Washington, was exhibited in the rotunda of the Capitol. Northerners celebrated it as a symbol of freedom, the rights of belonging. Southerners liked it as an image of liberty, independence. When the Civil War began, Loitze strongly supported the Union side. Uh, he supported the abolitionist movement. And it was used to raise money for the Union cause and also for the anti-slavery movement. And I'll show you some scenes in a, in, in a moment. He put it on display at, at what were called sanitary fairs, affairs to support the U.S. Sanitary Commission in 1864. He built a special frame for it 
which has disappeared. It was an enormous frame uh, uh, that weighed many tons, filled with the images of freedom and union, of those images of the northern cause. Then afterward, the frame vanished, and then just recently, the Met has decided that it will reinstall this painting, and it will do so by reconstructing the frame that survives in a Matthew Brady photograph. And it's, the frame, I'm told, has been done. Uh, it weighs seven tons. Uh, and uh, it makes an even uh, uh, more striking uh, um, presence than before. Now let's take a close look at this painting. And let's also look at the elements of a painter's art. I think we can see, first of all, in its construction that the painting is dominated by a compressed mass of figures in the boat. They're crowded closely together and so interlocked that from a distance or at a glance, they become almost one image, roughly, very roughly triangular in shape, with a base almost as broad as the painting itself, and an apex that's the head of George Washington. The triangular structure is reinforced in its stability by lines of composition, the pole and the bow, uh, the posture of the man who is holding that pole, then the oar just behind, and the line of the full oar, and all of those elements, uh, the, 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 the pole, the oar, the man's posture on the, on the bow, uh, lead the eye to the, to, toward Washington's head. Uh, the same thing happens with other lines. Uh, the posture of the man in the center of the, of the boat, in the white hunting shirt, and of the figure in uniform of just behind George Washington, more about him in a minute. And there's a line that runs through the woman or man in red uh, through the white hunting shirt uh, to Washington again. There's another line in the heads in, in the stern of the boat uh, or the, just, be, just before the stern. The only person who's not part of that triangle is the man who is rowing, who was, by the way, once again, Worthington Whitridge uh, posing for another, yet, a, a, another, uh, yet another uh, role. Um, but it's interesting that only one of these men is actually looking at George Washington, but they are arranged to draw the viewer's eye toward Washington himself. And the triangular construction, I think, communicates a feeling of mass and weight and solitary, uh, of solidarity, strength, gravitas. Uh, the artist reinforces the strength of these men together in the boat by the use of perspective and proportion stretching into the distance, that line of other boats and ferries packed with men, horses, including Washington's white horse, is visible in the background. Uh, Henry Knox's um, guns that marched with the infantry uh, on what appeared to be flatboat ferries that were actually used there. The distances shrink into the distance by the rules of perspective, and we get that sense of distance, depth, and scale. The, reed, the, the river is made to be very broad, uh, the east bank of the Delaware is far more distant than, in fact, it is actually at that part of the river. And in all of these ways, we get that sense of magnitude uh, uh, here. Then to all of these elements in the composition of the painting, Loitze adds movement. This painting is not a still life. Many of its elements are in motion. The river is moving. More in some versions of that painting than others, but always in motion. Some explicitly show a, 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 a swirl of the current, 
The jagged ice flows are far from the pieces of cake ice that we see on the river today. Uh, and they're meant to communicate a sense of danger as these men in the boats struggle to keep them at a distance uh, with their poles and their oars. The storm and sky are another swirl of motion. These are storm clouds. Uh, it was a nor'easter uh, in, the, in the weather records, just as in this uh, painting. The wind is high. We can see its strength uh, in the flagstaff that's bent backwards nearly 45 degrees. Uh, we can see it also in the flag that threatens to break loose from the hold of the man who's carrying it. We can see it in the scarves and plumes uh, that are blowing almost horizontally in the wind. The man behind, a man behind Washington desperately hanging on to his hat. And the lines of boats are moving forward slowly against the wind and across the current. Many of the individuals are in motion. The horses in the distant boats are restless. One of them seems almost out of control in the background. Many of the men in the foreground are in motion too. And if not in motion, they're in tension, straining at their work. Their bodies, faces are taut with the effort that they are making. At least four of them are working very hard with oars and poles. The man at the, at, at, at the, uh, struggling to, to steer the boat at the stern uh, is, uh, is, is under great strain, trying to keep the boat on course and to guide it through the, through the ice. Others are holding weapons, supporting each other, desperately clinging to the flag. At the center of all this whirl of movement, one man is not moving, George Washington is immobile. He's in a precarious pose, which has caused much comment among the debunkers. Uh, he's standing on one leg, as he does. Uh, he appears absolutely motionless, but there's another sort of tension in this figure. This is the image of a special kind of character in leadership that I think Leutze greatly admired. It was a stoic leader, a man of iron discipline. In a phrase from the the, the drama that Washington loved better than any other, Addison's Cato. It's the image of a Stoic leader who is, quote, severely bent against himself, as Addison wrote of Cato. And Washington asked that his officers perform Cato in their winter encampment several, several times. The play is a celebration of that austere Roman leader whom Washington took as a model uh, for his own conduct and de demeanor. It's interesting that these um, combination of elements both work to reinforce the centrality of these figures. They also, in the mass and in the acceleration, accelerating movement, become the physicist's measure of force. Uh, and this painting is a painting of force with those elements. Then there are other elements of a painter's craft that work differently here. One of them is light. And one great question to ask about any painting is about the source and the direction and the strength of light. The answer in this painting is that the light sources are complex, unnatural, and highly effective. Two sources of light appear in the distant sky. One is the bright light that suffuses the sky in the background, presumably meant to represent the light of dawn. This is the strongest light in the painting, and we can see its effect in the deep shadows along the side of the boat closest to us, away from the light, near the waterline, you can see the shadow of that bright light. 
Another source, not so prominent, but symbolically important, increasingly so through time, is that the light of that bright prophetic star in the eastern sky. Then we begin to notice other sources of light which were opposed to those sources. Even where the scene itself is so strongly backlighted in this way, many of the men are lighted from the front or from either side. Uh, notice the soldier near the brown, the bow in the brown shirt and the blue cap. His face is lighted brightly um, from the uh, from the from the right side. The, the, you see the man with the with the Scottish cap, which I'll talk about in a in a moment. But then look at the figure in the red shirt. The light there comes from the left. Uh, and what uh, and then the flag bearer's face uh, has light that comes from above. And Washington's face is illuminated uh, from the left. And I think what is going on here is that the artist wants us, even as these figures are all part of a kind of mass, he wants us very clearly to see the faces of these individual men in the boat and to recognize them as individuals even within this integrated group. And then he does that again with his use of color. Uh, And uh, the, the individual men are given very different colors that once again make them much more individual and variable than uniforms would do. We see them some in red, blue, black, the man at the stern in green, others in browns, grays, one in a white hunting shirt. And uh, altogether, uh, we see great diversity. But we also see a theme that begins to run through this painting. And it's a theme of red, white, and blue. And it's not only in the flag, but it's also in the, in the subtle hints in the sky. Uh, in which elements of red and white and blue were worked in uh, by these, uh, these uh, painters. It's also an atmospheric painting, very different from the work of many artists in the United States during the 19th century. Many of you here will know the work of Barbara Novak, a wonderful piece of art history, uh, centered on what she calls luminism, a very bright, clear light in American painting in the 19th century, many of our landscapes. Also, what she spoke of, or others, as lininess, that is, uh, the, everything is sharply edged in, in, in a good many American uh, uh, paintings and seen in a strong, clear, crisp light with very precise modeling. And Aloitzi did some work that way, but altogether it has a different feel. The light and color are often muted. Uh, he means to represent a night crossing. Uh, But also, he's creating an air of drama, of atmosphere. Uh, And he's doing that with an aesthetic that's very different from a great many American artists. It's interesting that the people that we think of as American painters in the 19th century were often much more international than the books about them. Uh, And they're drawing from European and American traditions. And that was going on in this painting when a great many American and European friends of Leutze were working together Uh, to make it so. There's something else in the atmosphere of this painting. There was a particular kind of aesthetic in the 19th century that's usually described by the word sublime, the search for the sublime. That is, in sublime, the sense of something that is majestic, inspiring all admiration. A great many art historians have spoken, have studied the sublime. There are monographs about this centering on other forms of it, on the sublimity of a storm at sea, 
thinking of the of the sublime as 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 it's as creating terror is very common in the literature. This was another kind of sublime in this high romantic painting that gives it another edge. Now, let's also turn to the question of this painting as history. And the question is, how accurate is it as a work of history? What are the historical themes here? And the debunkers have had a field day on this painting. It's clear that one reason why that figure in the center of the boat is struggling with the flag is perhaps that it hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> uh, the stars and stripes uh, uh, will follow uh, by a, a year. I was uh, oblivious to the fact that the sword, if you look at this curved, massive sword, which actually was a sword that was in the, in the possession of George Washington, it was pointed out to me by a swordsman, uh, which I am not, that the sword is strapped on backwards. I wasn't aware of that. Uh, and uh, there are many other uh, complaints uh, that have been made. The one that's made uh, the, most, the, the most often is that he was standing up in the boat. Uh, and we know that they were crossing in probably almost anything that would float on the Delaware River. Most of them were, float, were crossing in Durham boats, which are big freight boats uh, that were used to transport grain, iron ore, coal, down the Delaware River, and they had no seats in them. Uh, there was no place to sit down in a Durham boat. On top of that, these boats were crossing in a raging storm, and they were pretty full of water at the bottom. And I don't think anybody could have sat down very long in a Durham boat, so it's very probable that almost everybody who crossed the Delaware in, a, in the Durham boat that carried most of them were standing in the boat. And the debunkers have backed off from that. And we don't hear so much about that complaint. But let, let, let's do something that I think that, that the author really wanted us to do. And that's to look at the other figures in the boat. There are 12 of them altogether. There may have been, there's a suggestion of a 13th. There's one man in the stern is holding two weapons. It's quite possible that uh, I've, I've often pondered that. Did, did Lloyd C. mean to suggest that one of the states uh, was absent here? And he may have had in mind the state of South Carolina, as he was a strong anti-slavery uh, man. Uh, but in any case, 12, and, the, and their dress is very carefully designed by Lloyd C. It tells us that these are soldiers from many parts of America, and each of them has a story to tell. And the story is, re, is, is told here with great economy, uh, with just a few strokes of the artist's brush. One man uh, sitting, the, the man uh, in, behind the, the, the first figure on the left uh, is wearing the tarpaulin jacket of a New England seaman. We look again and discover that he is of African descent. Uh, probably 95% of African Americans in 1775, 1776 were slaves. And this man would probably have been a slave or certainly very close to slavery. And we look again and we discover that probably in that, it turns out that that tarpaulin jacket was a uniform of one regiment in particular, which were the Marblehead Mariners of Massachusetts. Uh, and uh, they would play a major role uh, in, the, in, in the crossing. The man sitting on this side of the boat is wearing um, a Balmoral bonnet or perhaps a Tam O'Shanter. And he is, I think, meant to represent a recent Scottish or Scots-Irish immigrant 
um, uh, still in his uh, ethnic uh, uh, dress. Uh, there is at, at the bow and at the stern and also in the middle of the boat three very hard-faced western riflemen dressed in hunting shirts and deerskin leggings. Huddled between the thwarts of the boat uh, toward the stern are farmers from Pennsylvania and New Jersey and they're wearing blanket coats, coats that were actually made out of blankets and broad-brimmed hats. One of them doesn't carry a musket or a rifle, uh, but a countryman's double-barreled shotgun. And there's that kind of detail. The other is a, is a soldier who looks ill or wounded uh, and, um, and is meant to describe the condition of these men, which was desperate. Uh, and the more we dig, the more desperate we discover it to be. A soldier behind him is in full uniform, which is a rarity in this army. He wears the blue coat and red facings of Hazlitt's Delaware Regiment. Another figure wears a boat cloak and an oiled hat that a prosperous Baltimore merchant might have used on a West Indian voyage. And his sleeve is turned up just far enough to reveal the facings of Smallwood's Maryland Regiment. It was a silk stocking regiment. Uh, and these Maryland regiments, uh, composed of men who thought of themselves as gentlemen rankers, insisted on, on enlisting with a contract of their own invention in which they were guaranteed, insisted that they must be guaranteed, that they would be never treated in a way that was unworthy of a gentleman. They could not be subjected to corporal punishment. And if they were, they reserved the right to go home. Uh, and we see this uh, figure of this background uh, here in the boat. And then there are the dominant figures in the boat who are two gentlemen of Virginia who stand tall among the rest. One of them is Lieutenant James Monroe, uh, the future fifth president of the United States, holding the American flag. He was a lieutenant in the Continental Army, and he would be severely wounded, almost died of his wounds in the battle uh, that uh, followed. And the other is Washington. He's wearing his Continental uniform of buff and blue. It had been the uniform of the Fairfax County Militia. Before that, it had been uh, the, the livery of a, of a hunt in Virginia that was modeled on the hunt of the Duke of Devonshire. Uh, and their colors were not red and black, but buff and blue. He holds a brass telescope and wears that heavy saber, I think, together symbolic of a statesman vision and a soldier's strength. The artist wants us to see these men as individuals, but he also wants us to remember that they're in the same boat, working desperately together against the wind, across the current. He's given them that common sense of mission, and that bright prophetic star that Boise did not invent uh, reinforces that idea. And all of this, I think, is to raise a question, not about small questions of accuracy or inaccuracy, but about the larger accuracy of the painting in regard to the events that it seeks to represent. And I think it was right in a good many ways, more ways than wrong by a long shot. He was right in creating that atmosphere of high drama around the event and that feeling of desperation that we see in these soldiers. The writings of these men, and we have a lot of writings from these men, and they all describe uh, that sense of urgency and desperation. The American cause was very near collapse in December of 1776. Washington's army had suffered many defeats. It had lost 90% of its strength since the summer of 1776. 
and the few that crossed the Delaware River were at the very near the limit of their uh, resources. And all of that, I think, is quite truly represented here. It's also true in its center on this boat to the scale of the event, which is small by other happenings in American history. Uh, this was a battle in which 2,400 Americans would face about 1,700 Hessians. By contrast, at Antietam in the Civil War, 115,000 Americans fought on that one day, uh, the most, uh, the bloodiest day in, in, in the Civil War. The Battle of the Bulge involved a million men, uh, and it went on for more than a month. By these comparisons, Washington's Crossing was a very small event. And the artist is true to that sense of dimension, in, particularly in the foreground. But it also argues, makes an argument, that size is not the measure of significance. These battles uh, were conflicts between histor major historical processes, and the artist was thinking of it in those terms. He was writing, doing, creating this thing not only for America, but for the world. And I think one of the major themes in his work was that these men were joining the ideas, values of the revolution to the conduct of the War of Independence. And that became a theme in my book, which I won't go over again here. Uh, but suffice to say uh, that Loitze, I think, had this right. I think there's something else that may be not quite so right. And that's the posture of Washington himself. Washington was in process of reinventing his leadership here. He didn't want to do it, but he didn't have a choice. Uh, he found himself commanding an, an army, mostly 60% of this army that crossed the Delaware River were New England Yankees, very cantankerous New England Yankees. And they did not take kindly to the airs of a Chesapeake gentleman. And I've written in my book about the songs that they sang, Yankee Doodle, and there were verses in Yankee Doodle that were not written or sung by children. And a good many of them uh, were uh, complaints of the arrogance of Captain Washington and his slapping stallion and that sort of thing. And Washington, in turn, complained that these men were, had a dirty and a leveling spirit, quote unquote, ab about them. And uh, that was major trouble in the campaign around New York. And there was a period when people began to think that Washington was not well matched to this job. He himself thought that when he had been appointed commander-in-chief of the army. And when that happened, he was in the Continental Congress. And he turned to the man standing next to him, who happened to be Patrick Henry, and he said, depend upon it, Mr. Henry, from this day you may date the ruin of my reputation. He thought that he was going to find it maybe impossible to lead these men, particularly from the top down. He came from that place that was so hierarchical, the northern neck of Virginia measured in three degrees of longitude, east to west of the mountains, uh, and it belonged to one family, the Fairfax family. And it was amongst the most hierarchical place in the country. He was a slave owner and a slave driver. We have descriptions of Washington whipping a slave with his own hand. And then suddenly he found himself commanding this army that was very different in its nature. And he wrote home to one of his members of his family, he said, a people unused to restraint must be led. They will not be drove. 
And on that basis, he began to organize a new idea of leadership, a much more open style of leadership. He began to listen to these men. He created new sorts of councils of war, and he did that before he crossed the Delaware. And there's a posture here of authority of some people say he looks, Washington looks almost Napoleonic in this representation. I think here, Aloysius uh, uh, wasn't quite accurate. Uh, but um, altogether, I think uh, he catches much that is true. Now, let me begin to show you some other images. And uh, how much time do I have left? Um, uh, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go very quickly now and just show you a kind of kaleidoscope of other images that might bring out the iconic role of this painting. First of all, it follows many other paintings. It follows paintings that celebrate Trenton and Princeton in very different ways, centering almost entirely on Washington himself. Uh, this is uh, Charles Wilson Peale, Marylander. Uh, and it's uh, Washington um, at the, after the Battle of Trenton. He painted in various ways. Sometimes it was after the Battle of Princeton. In the background is the flag that probably would have been carried in that boat, which was the headquarters flag of George Washington, which was simply a blue flag with those 13 stars. And uh, Appeal centered his icon of this great event entirely on, the, on, on this, or almost entirely on this man. There are many versions of this, and some of them have the Hessian flags at the feet of Washington, and it's a flag of uh, triumph, of, of victory. Here, here we see both the British flags taken at Princeton and the Hessian flags. He, he actually borrowed the flags from the army uh, that, were, that, were, that were captured uh, there. It's a very militant uh, picture. And then this is a contemporary. Uh, uh, this is uh, John Trumbull. And both of these artists are, uh, soldiered under Washington. They knew him well. Uh, Trumbull, a New Englander. And you'll see that he thinks of Washington as a slaveholder. And in the back to the right is a slave who is uh, William Lee, who was Washington's closest companion in the war. And he vanishes from the Chesapeake accounts. He just wasn't even noticed there, but a New Englander noticed. And William Lee, who was one of the great riders of his age, uh, riding in, in, in these battles, is made part of this. And there's also a kind of austerity to this New England image of Washington, but like Peel, it's an iconic figure. Both of these men deeply admired Washington, and they tried to center uh, this event entirely on him. Uh, and, 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 and when they move on, this is uh, Trumbull on the, on the Battle of Trenton, not interested in the crossing, but in the victory himself. That's, that's Colonel Roll, mortally wounded, Washington on horseback. And we see a, 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 something that centers more on the military event uh, that centers uh, mainly uh, on the moment of, of triumph here. And then this was another uh, icon of Washington that was painted by a third artist who also soldiered with Washington. Uh, it's William Rush. And William Rush uh, could have represented Washington in many ways. But what he chose to do, he knew Washington mainly as a soldier, but what he chose to do was to represent him as a symbol of the republic, as a symbol of the rule of law, as a man who followed the rule of law even in those difficult times of, the, of 1776. And what he was doing here, I think, was he, here again linking the values of the revolution uh, to the war itself. Uh, it's also one of the, many people said it was one of the most um, 
accurate representations of Washington's face and figure uh, by one of the most gifted of the sculptures, uh, sculptures of this, uh, of this uh, period. Then, uh, it, with the, in the Romantic uh, movement, people begin to turn to that dramatic event of the crossing. And one of the first to do so uh, was the painter Sully. Uh, and uh, Thomas Sully, an English immigrant, painted this scene. It's called The Passage of the Delaware. Uh, and this was a generation before, uh, uh, before um, uh, the, uh, the painting of Loitzi. Uh, it was uh, commissioned in 1818. It's another gigantic work. It's 17 feet wide, 12 feet high. Uh, and it has some of the elements that are in the other painting. Uh, we're not on the river. Uh, we're above it. And once again, everything centers very much on Washington, and the men have very little in the way of character or presence or even the features uh, that we see. And this was uh, copied by uh, many others. This, this painting also languished, as did for a time uh, Washington's Crossing the Delaware, which uh, from about 1950 to 1970 was banished from the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, to Washington's Crossing, Pennsylvania, and then was allowed to go on indefinite loan uh, to Dallas, Texas, uh, and then in 1970, they decided, uh, the, the people of the Met, that maybe they should have it back again and put it in. And the same thing happened with the Sully uh, uh, the portrait. It, it disappeared into the basement of the, uh, uh, or the back rooms of the, of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston for the better part of a century. And now has just come out, it's been cleaned. Here it's being unrolled. Uh, and it hasn't been put up quite yet, but it's just about there. And you can see from all of this the enormous scale of these heroic paintings. Sully, uh, Washington's passage of the Delaware. And then after that, a friend of, uh, I should say what this is, this is uh, uh, the Quaker painter Hicks, uh, who for a tavern sign is very carefully copying the Sully painting. And that Sully painting began to travel uh, in, uh, be reproduced in engravings. I'm sure that Leutze knew about it uh, and must have been influenced uh, in many ways at once. And then another figure, and this is a good friend of Leutze, another American artist who was uh, at the Dusseldorf Academy, and it's uh, George Caleb Bingham, a native Virginian, whose family moved to Missouri. And he's best known as a painter of the Missouri frontier. And here he shows Washington is he crossing the Mississippi, or he is uh, in a flatboat? It's uh, something like that. He was a genre painter. This is a period of expansive, expansive uh, uh, consciousness of, of democracy, and we see some of that. We also see a mix of, I think Washington's the only person there in 18th century dress. All the others are in 19th century dress, uh, pretty much. But the white horse is always uh, the same in these iconic uh, images. After that, in the late 19th century, the filiopietists had their day. This is Daniel Chester French. Uh, and this is an equestrian statue of Washington uh, that was commissioned for a public square in Paris, which still stands. Uh, and uh, Washington appears. This is, a, this is triumphant. This is... Uh, the, 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 the sort of the, the worship of a, of, of a great hero uh, in that posture. And the same thing appears in Princeton. Uh, this is the Washington Battle Monument uh, just off Nassau, at the end of Nassau Street. Um, 
uh, in, in, in Princeton. And once again, uh, it's, it's very hierarchical, uh, very top-down, uh, and very um, celebratory. We also get, in the late um, 19th century, this is a postcard. And what's interesting, this is a period when racism it gets a capital R, when it becomes really a full-fledged ism in America, in the way that it had scarcely been before, not that we hadn't had much of it before. But look for that black man in the bow of the boat. He's gone. Uh, and the African-American has been removed from the history of that event in this image. And we can see that happening in this period when racism reaches, I think, the peak of its intensity in American history. And then come the debunkers. And this is Grant Wood. Grant Wood had, some, had, a, had, a, had a running argument with the Daughters of the American Revolution. Uh, it, was a, it was a complicated uh, 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 event, but uh, uh, Grant Wood had, had uh, designed and carried out a, a, a stained glass window uh, uh, that was to be a symbol of American participation in World War I. And he had it made in Germany. And the Daughters of the American Revolution accused him of an unpatriotic act for having done this. And they really went after him. Uh, this was mainly, the, 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 it was centered mainly on the, in the town of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, but it became a national um, uh, battle. And the the, finally, it kept escalating as Grant Wood kept saying what he thought of the daughters of the, uh, this is called Daughters of the Revolution, uh, and with Washington's crossing in the background, uh, as, you, as you will see. And uh, the Baltimore chapter of the Daughters of the, of, the, of the American Revolution tried to have Grant Wood deported as a rid, quote unquote. Um, but others loved the satire, and this in the late 1930s uh, gave Americans a much needed laugh in the, in the Great Depression. Then after that, we see that uh, the painting becomes a national icon, and we celebrate it. Uh, this is 1951, I think, uh, uh, a, a cover of the Saturday Evening Post. The colors have been brightened yet again, uh, and we can, we can see that uh, the sense of, of a kind of popular icon now, uh, broader in the base. But then other groups begin to discover this, and this is Larry Rivers. Uh, the, uh, this, uh, an abstract expressionist uh, painter uh, uh, working in New York. Um, uh, the year was 1953. He'd been reading Tolstoy's War and Peace, and he decided to do a modern painting on a great historical epic on an American theme, and he chose Washington crossing the Delaware. His friends, poets, and painters in that movement thought that he was out of his mind. Uh, and they severely uh, criticized him. Here's his friend, his poet friend, Frank O'Hara, who said, what could be dopier than a painting dedicated to a national cliche, Washington crossing the Delaware? The last painting that dealt with George and the rebels is hanging in the Met and was painted by a coarse German 19th century academician who really loved Napoleon more than any, anyone else. But Rivers had another image in mind. And notice that Washington is up in the corner now on his horse, uh, and at the center are these forlorn soldiers. The soldier with the bandaged head is now at the center of this uh, painting. He's taking his elements uh, from Leutze's uh, painting. Shadowy figures of individual soldiers, small groups, appear throughout the painting. Um, and uh, the poet wrote, uh, wrote a, 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 the poet Frank O'Hara, who then warmed to this enterprise and said that everybody in the painting is reduced to the anxious status of a 
of a displaced person. Uh, and this was in that period that, that W.H. Auden called the Age of Anxiety, when a young uh, composer at Brandeis University, Leonard Bernstein, wrote his second symphony on the, called the Age of Anxiety. The mood's dark, withdrawn, brooding, uh, puzzled, a bit bewildered. No heroics here, no certainties. Uh, and it got much attention. Larry Rivers remembered in the bar where I could usually be found with my fellow painters, a lot of them laughed. Uh, and it's, but it's now displayed in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Um, it kept on into the 70s, or this, uh, this was yet another uh, in that school, Roy Lichtenstein, I, if you can believe that's Washington crossing the Delaware. Uh, another, I can't think of anything to say about, about that. <laughs> but um, the, uh, the, then in the 1970s, an age of idol smashing, political correctness. Uh, here is uh, here's one version of Washington, uh, that, just barely afloat. Uh, here is another one. This one is more complex. Peter Saul, Washington crossing the Delaware. Uh, an academic uh, uh, artist um, on the um, faculty of the University of Texas in Austin. It's actually, I can't, couldn't find a color version of this, but it's in day glow bright acrylic colors, and you'll see the river crossing is reduced to chaos. Washington, his horse, his men, all tumble out of the boat into the river. The American and British soldiers are firing at each other in a battle on the ice. And the entire story is, is inverted from Blitzy's painting as completely as the capsized boat. And then this is Robert Colescott, same year, 1975. And it's George Washington Carver crossing the Delaware, <laughs> page from an American history textbook. Uh, every figure in the boat is meant to explode a racist stereotype. The artist explains in a sentence. He said, in re-exposing these images, I wanted to show the grand scale stupidity of stereotyping, quote, unquote. And then, um, then it becomes a cartoonist's favorite, and the figure now is so familiar that the cartoonist never has to mention what it is. This is uh, Sorrell's painting, George Sorrell. This, uh, this is uh, uh, Nixon crossing the Delaware. Uh, it's bare, I apologize for the state of the slide. It's barely, uh, you can barely see. But then it just goes on to one, and I'm just going to run through these various images in which Washington appears in several uh, roles. Uh, sometimes uh, he appears as a standard by which others are to be judged. Uh, and here is um, a view, I think, from the uh, right, uh, complaining of uh, people on the left uh, criticizing a war, the war effort. Uh, here is a scene of George Washington <laughs> uh, trying to cross uh, a street in Washington, D.C., uh, and it's a commentary on the uh, safety of the streets in the nation's capital. Uh, this is um, an ecological view of the subject uh, in which Washington now is part of the problem uh, rather than the solution, as are the other figures in the boat double-crossing the Delaware. Uh, these are various uh, versions of this. Here is uh, a critique of the bicentennial uh, and, of the, and of the commercialization of it all. Uh, uh, this is yet another view from the, from the right. Um, and, um, but this is from the left. This is Rush Limbaugh crossing the Delaware. Uh, this is the New York Times uh, magazine just recently, perhaps you saw this, 
uh, they were not happy about the religious right um, trying to put um, uh, uh, Christianity at the center of the American revolutionary in this occasion. It's often put to many commercial uses and could fill many a screen. This was the work of the Miller Brewing Company. Uh, and uh, the Muppets uh, <laughs> way in. Uh, and, um, but this is one of my favorites. Uh, this, um, our children in California uh, found this uh, in the Laguna Surfing Museum in California. Uh, and this is by Sandal Burke, and it's called, uh, uh, it's called North Swell, Washington Crossing the Delaware. Sandal Burke is a very gifted painter. He's done a series of historical paintings on the history of California. Uh, and he's also, he did this painting, and I actually corresponded with him about it. And it's about a group of surfers in the posture of Washington soldiers. Uh, and they're moving bravely into the great ocean swell that that's surfers call the North Swell uh, that, that is driven by, on the, onto the coast of Southern California. Uh, and uh, the artist um, explains that all of this is to establish the meaning of people in the, in the throes of what he described as a past and present history, a past and present history. That is, it's to link uh, this memory with the lives that Americans are living. And to correspond with him was to learn about his deep sympathy for all of that and the very seriousness of its of his interests. Uh, and then we come back here and find this painting on the wall again. Uh, not it's soon to be on the wall in yet another uh, form. Uh, and we can see that every generation in America has revisited this icon, reconstructed it. It gets debunked. And then after the debunkers are the iconoclasts who are much more serious about their work. Uh, and yet through all of that, it survives. Uh, it keeps uh, retaining its sense of wonder and strength for many of us today. And I will stop there and invite your questions. We're going to leave this on the screen. And, um, and, um, and any thoughts, any suggestions, anybody at all? Uh, who's, who will start? Somebody? Yes, I can barely see, uh, and so um, speak, shout, shout out. Maybe for your religious, it's like Raphael's draft, the miraculous draft of the fisherman. Yes. And it's not the exact composition, but it has that quality. And the man in the front is like... Uh, St. George and the Dragon, who usually has a spear going down. And maybe he's holding a French telescope, the Rochon. He's holding a... A French telescope, the Rochon telescope. And the French are going to be involved. Yes. So I think all of those are, are certainly possible. And uh, I, the more we look, the more we see in, in just yeah. those, uh, those ways. That is, echoes of icons past, yeah. uh, as well as uh, we find more meanings in the... In, such often Leutze was working from details, such as I don't know that that was actually his telescope, but he was being very attentive to those details. And, and upstairs we have Alex Katz's play that was made. Yes. Uh, of Washington crossing the Delaware. And, and with the with the with the flat figures. Yes. Yeah.
Thank you. They're Thank wonderful you. images. Anybody else? Anybody? Other questions? Yeah. yeah uh, Please. Do, do you believe that the painting helped to popularize democracy in Europe? Helped to pop popularize democracy. Democracy and what was yeah in, what was happening in, in, in America. Europe. I don't know that it did. I think that um, that it has been spreading around the world in the wake of democracy, uh, and maybe uh, we, we people begin to find more of interest that way than in the period when it was uh, when, when democracy was in its deepest travail. In, in Europe. I think there were other figures, but then so many of the American revolutionary figures didn't reach a European public. I think one, I've just been doing some work on Lafayette, and I was amazed that French memories of Lafayette are often very different from those in the United States. That many French on the, on the left saw, uh, saw Lafayette as betraying the Republic. That um, French on the right saw Lafayette as betraying the nation. The country, uh, and uh, it, this was a country that was much more deeply polarized, and Lafayette was a man in the center, uh, and so that uh, images from America didn't travel well at the at the beginning, I think, um, of these of these periods. But today, there have been new polls that show that the French, as they are moving, some I think moving toward the center, are also changing their minds about Lafayette. Uh, and so we're seeing that, uh, that, that there, there may be uh, a, a more of a kind of fellow feeling as these, some of these uh, national cultures uh, begin to move closer together. I think the first book I, I read about the, uh, the crossing was, was part of Richard Ketchum's book, The Winter Soldiers. Yes. And, and there have been uh, other books since then that have focused on the historical aspects of it and seems to grow uh, in importance as you read the more of the detail. Was, at, at the time, in the, in the mid-19th century, was the, uh, or even back to the actual occurrence, was there the same sense of the pivotalness of this uh, event that, that we seem to be seeing more and more today during, uh, as far as the historical renditions occur. Yeah, I'd say a couple of things to that. First, uh, that was certainly so on the American side uh, in, in 1776. And uh, the Americans were really um, deeply worried about the fate of the cause in, in, in December of 1776. They, they really thought it was in danger of defeat, and it was. Uh, and so it was received throughout America as a deliverance uh, and uh, it got enormous attention just there. The British leaders did not see it as a pivotal event. They called it General Wall's mistake or Colonel Rawls' mistake and that sort of thing. They, uh, they, uh, they were the ones who circulated the quite false statement that the Hessians had been drinking uh, uh, when it happened and otherwise it wouldn't have been. And so they minimized it that way. But then something else happened, which was that after the, 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 the battle was over, Washington ordered that the Hessians should be treated with humanity. And that idea began to travel. And it was that idea of linking the revolution and the war that I mentioned before. And that, that got people's attention in Western Europe. And the other was that the combination of Trenton and then there were two battles, there was the second battle of Trenton and then Princeton, 
got the attention of others in a different way in Europe. And, uh, Frederick the Great said that it was uh, one of the greatest feats of soldiering in history. And Washington's military reputation, I think, rested on all of that. So that began to spread as well. I think most historians would say this was not the pivotal moment of the revolution. Uh, that the revolution went on longer than the Civil War uh, and our participation in World War II combined. And we almost lost the war at other points after this. And Saratoga, Yorktown, it was such a close run thing that I think there were a good many pivotal moments that way. And I, what I've tried to argue, and I think others increasingly today, is that this was one moment in a series of them where we could have lost it at, at any number of, of points. So at least there are three or four different takes on, 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 this, on this event. And I think in general it's been growing through time as people get a closer look at it. Uh, thank you. I wanted to know the timing of the day that the image is depicted. Was that in sync with the actual event? Not quite, no. Uh, the, uh, the crossing, the, the object of this, of, of, the, of, the, camp, of the, the operation was to uh, be able to attack uh, Trenton at sunrise. And they had a long march from the crossing uh, to Trenton. And it would, they, they moved at about three miles an hour. It would have taken them at least four, it took them at least four or five hours to get from the crossing point uh, to, uh, to Trenton. Uh, but they were much delayed. They were supposed to, to cross, they would get, uh, actually begin to cross before uh, dark. And they were delayed and it, the delays went on and on. Mostly they did cross before dawn. And Washington was, we have an image of Washington sitting on an abandoned beehive on the, looking over the crossing and wondering if he should have called it off as it got later and later. Decided it would have been more chaos to try to get back than to go forward. But it meant that they were probably crossing, the crossing was more or less complete in, in the dark and we wouldn't have seen that light in the, in the eastern sky. Um, but, uh, and, and it was a pitch dark night. Everybody, all the accounts uh, describe the effect of this deep storm uh, that's up uh, nor'easter with these heavy bands of snow and sleet, uh, much less visibility. Uh, there, the, the weather was cold, below freezing. It had been much colder. Uh, the river had, uh, had frozen and then thawed, and there were cakes of ice, uh, not quite like these icebergs uh, that are in the, in, in the painting. So there's, uh, there's some license. There are people who said that ice forms that way on the River Rhine. I don't know about that. Uh, and um, in fact, they've said that this really is the River Rhine, which I think is not correct. But it's a much larger Delaware than, in fact, is at that point in the, at that, at that part of the, of the river. So it's pretty accurate. It's very accurate to the nor'easter, I think. The wind is right. Uh, and so I think he, it's a very mixed uh, 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 rendering on, on that. If he painted the atmosphere as it actually w would have been, it would just be a black canvas. <laughs> and I don't think it would have been helpful to the artist to, to have been accurate on that point. You, men you mentioned that at the Art Academy in Europe, there were several painters from the United States. You mentioned one of them was Bingham. Any other, yeah, George Caleb Bingham. Any uh, other known name? Yes, uh, Albert Bierstadt was there, uh, the great, uh, great landscape, uh, the great painter of the West. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the others uh, uh, included um, 
it's a, there, there are 40 of them in the back of one of the major monographs on, on this, and uh, they, uh, they really covered a broad range of these these paintings. So the names are escaping me at the moment, uh, but I can give you a list of them uh, if you come up afterwards. Thank you. Uh, yes. For, sorry. Thank you for your, uh, your comments. Uh, could you tell us a little more about the painting, like how long it took him to paint it? Um, maybe uh, a little more about his uh, motivation for painting yeah. it. And, and how do you paint a painting this big? I think uh, first on the time, uh, the, the first painting I think was almost a better part of, was more than a year in process. The second painting was about five months, the one after the fire. It was done very quickly with a lot of with a lot more help. His motivation, I think, was there were a series of of, of motives there, and I think the first was the, the, that idea that he was serving in his. I think well, maybe you could start in a different place and say that the first purpose was to was to do a great history painting. He'd been doing history paintings before this one. He'd done a series on Columbus that got a lot of attention, made a, made his contemporary reputation of their more for. They're nearly forgotten today. He'd done paintings always on themes of liberty or freedom. There were many paintings about the sufferings of the Puritans in, 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 uh, in 17th, century, uh, 17th century Britain. Uh, and then a series of other themes that were comparable to that. So we can see this sort of liberal democratic agenda in the choice of his, uh, of his images. The, one, his, the most memorable image of Columbus was when Columbus was sent back after a difference of opinion with others in, um, in the Spanish Empire, was sent back in chains. And the chains were ordered to be removed by the king. And it's that moment that he painted on, on, on Columbus. So I think we can see that liberal agenda running through. Later on, other people have given him more of a material motive. Uh, when he sold the painting um, to the engravers, uh, and, but I think we can also see that the, the purposes that were not only European in that European liberal agenda, but when he became more deeply engaged in the struggle for, against slavery in America, very active that way, both in his paintings and also in what he was doing about it. Uh, and um, so I, I think largely this was, a, I, for me, the motives are his principled, or, or, or his principled, uh, choices here, rather than for the search for profit. Though I have a law of motivation, which is that people do what they do for every good reason they can think of. <laughs> uh, and I think that, uh, that there, there were some really, some of the monographs are centered on that, these, these material things, and they were there too. Uh, well, uh, and many of you have uh, this subject in your bones. Uh, and you often, and you have a knowledge of uh, art and history, and I would love to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.